thank you again for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Aviva Lauer on the fast day Yom Kippur. This podcast is sponsored by Linda A. and Stephen Hurwitz in honor of all that Pardes gives our people as we enhance and enrich our passion and purpose. May your fast be easy and may we all be healthy this new year. Shana Tova, and now, Aviva Lauer. Hi, my name is Aviva Lauer, and I am the director of the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators. And I'm really excited to talk to you today about the Jonah story, as in Jonah and the whale or the big fish. The book of Jonah, Sefer Yonah, is what we read as the Haftorah at the Mincha service on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur afternoon. And I really wonder why we read this book as the Haftorah. What message are we meant to take from it for our Yom Kippur thinking and reflection? So that's really my first essential question of our talk today. And second of all, if we're reading it in the specific Yom Kippur context, as opposed to maybe a historical context, I want to know, who is the hero of this story? One would think it would be Jonah himself. I mean, it's named after him, and he's a prophet. But I'm not so sure he's heroic at all. Let's look at the story together and see what we see. God speaks to Jonah, the son of Amitai, and tells him to get up and go to Nineveh, the big city, and tell it that you've done bad, you've done wrong. Essentially, he is supposed to prophesy to them that they have done wrong, and therefore they are going to be punished. Probably inherent or implied in his words are, and you're going to get punished if you don't change your ways, right? Now, instead of doing the heroic thing, one might say, which is to listen to God's words and do what God says, Jonah does the exact opposite. Instead of getting up and going to Nineveh, he actually gets up and runs away to a place called Tarshish. Well, at least he tries. He goes to Jaffa, the port city, and he finds a boat and gets on it, and he starts running away on this boat towards someplace far from Nineveh, far from the place that God had sent him to be a prophet to. And So he essentially is not listening to God at all. He doesn't respond to God. Then something happens on the ship. There is a great wind. In fact, a storm comes about and the ship is about to overturn. It's a really serious problem. And the sailors on the ship are all trying to figure out what to do. And they're all calling out to their own gods. Jonah goes down into the deep of the ship, into the hold, and he goes to sleep. Well, the captain of the ship does not understand this behavior, and he speaks to Jonah, and he says to him, What are you doing going to sleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe God is going to help us. And 
Jonah doesn't respond to that either. He just, it's as if he's ignoring everything that he is being, um, that is being said to him or asked of him. Then the sailors ask him a bunch of questions as well. They want to see if perhaps he can help them figure out what the problem is. They ask a series of questions and Jonah responds, but he doesn't answer the questions that they ask. He just sort of says what he wants to say. They then speak to him again, and he doesn't answer again. He is really seemingly um, oppositional, even. He's not doing at all what he's meant to be doing. Eventually, the sailors get out of Jonah that they should just throw him in the sea, and that will help the storm abate. And that's what they do. Of course, they feel very uncomfortable with this, but they do it, and the storm does go away immediately. This book of Jonah is a short book, pretty much, I would say, relatively. It's a four-chapter book, and that was the first chapter. In the second chapter, since he has just been thrown overboard, Jonah is swallowed by a big fish which God has sent, and he sits in this big fish for three days and three nights. Interestingly, he prays a lot there. He talks to God and it says, Jonah prays to God, his God, from the depths, the innards of the fish. And it's quite a long prayer, but what's possibly, it, what's thought is that um, this might have been a later insertion, these many verses of the prayer. So if one thought, oh, the person who was not talkative at all suddenly becomes talkative, well, it's possible that this talking Jonah was um, inserted by a later editor. He, at the end of this chapter, the fish spits him out onto dry land and he's saved. And as soon as he gets back on dry land in chapter three, God once again sends him out to do his God's bidding, which is to go to Nineveh and speak to the people there and tell them that if they don't shape up, they're going to be punished. At this point, Jonah does God's bidding, but he doesn't seem happy about it. In fact, after he goes and tells the people of Nineveh, and the people of Nineveh actually do teshuva, they actually repent from their evil ways um, under the influence and auspices of their king, Jonah is very distressed by the fact that they do teshuva. That's the end of chapter three. And in chapter four, we have a very distraught Jonah in conversation with God, but not even so much conversation. God says to him several times, what, what's up? What, what's bothering you so much? Why are you so upset? And he's a real downer. Even the final crescendo of the book, if you look at the end of chapter four, where God says to him, gives him a message about what it really means to care for other human beings and the world around us, we don't have any sort of answer from Jonah. He just, it ends on God talking and Jonah being silent. He's really not responsive. And if I were a pun maker, I would say he's not a teshuva man, haha, teshuva being the Hebrew word for both repentance and answer. He just is, doesn't respond and he seems ornery and cantankerous. So if he is not the hero of this story, 
What's his problem anyway? Why is he so ornery and why is he so unhappy that the people of Nineveh do repentance? I'm going to take you back to an earlier story and perhaps we will find some answers there to this question. Let's look at the story in the book of Melachim, the book of Kings, the first book, in chapter 17. And what happens there is we are meeting for the first time Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Hanavi. And after Eliyahu has given his prophecy to the king Ahav and said, Basically, your ways are terrible. You are doing awful things. You are worshiping other gods, which he and his wife, Izebel, Jezebel, were doing. And because of that, Eliyahu said, Elijah said, there is not going to be rain for a long time until I say so. He pronounces that there is going to be a drought, and then he runs away from the king and queen. He goes to a place in Sidon, called Sarafat, and he rooms in the house of a very poor widow who has a son. And he provides, miraculously, food for the poor widow and her son. But um, something happens after a while, and that is that the son gets really sick, and he dies. And the poor widow freaks out and says, what is going on? How could you let this happen? You know, you're supposed to be a miraculous type of guy. Um, Not in those words exactly. But Eliyahu, who is a miracle maker, takes the boy, carries him up to the attic, and does some sort of magic, you might say. He lies himself down on top of the boy, and through the contact between Eliyahu and the boy, he brings the boy back from the dead. He breathes his life into the boy, and the boy comes back. The Yerushalmi, the Palestinian Talmud in Tractate Sukkah, Perak Bed, and also the, the book called Pirkei Drabi Eliezer, chapter 33, and on our book, the book of Jonah, on the first verse, where Yonah ben Amitai is named, the Malbim and other commentators identify Yonah, Jonah, with that boy that Eliyahu revived. Well, why do they do that? I would say, first of all, that Yonah ben Amitai, that's the name that he is given for him. Amitai is... Um, comes from the Shoresh of Emet, comes from the root of truth. And in fact, both Eliyahu and Yonah are very truth-oriented people. You see that they care more about what's right and what's just than what is kind and what uh, will help the most number of people. You could also say that the timeline that we have for um, Yonah ben Amitai in the second book of Kings, because he's mentioned there as well, it potentially fits time-wise that he is the same person as the kid in the first book of Kings that Eliyahu revived.
But really, again, more than that, they have a lot in common. And if you want to look at the amazing website called alhatorah.org, A-L-H-A-T-O-R-A-H.org, there is um, a beautiful comparison between Eliyahu and Yonah. They, there's a lot of parallel in the content of their stories. But as I said before, they both seem to think that only perfection is okay. Only doing what is exactly right is okay. Their, <laughs> their standards are extremely high. Anything else is not worth anything, it seems. In fact, in the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, when after he has reluctantly gotten the people of Nineveh to do teshuva, and he's speaking to God, he's praying to God bitterly about wanting to die. What does he say? He says, the reason that I ran originally to Tarshish and didn't want to go to Nineveh is, ki adati ki ata el chanun verachum erch apaim v'rav chesed v'nicham al I ran away because I knew, God, that you are merciful and you are compassionate and you're kind and you are willing to forgive. And very interestingly, this is, he's almost quoting God's attributes from the Torah in Exodus. And the one particular attribute of God that is mentioned in Exodus Hashem, Hashem, Erachum v'chanun, Erachapayim v'rav chesed ve'emet, it's emet. He leaves that out when he quotes. Because for him, he's saying, God, you're all about the mercy. You're all about the compassion. But there's no emet in you. There's no deen. There's no justice. Right? His raison d'etre, like Eliyahu, is truth. Absolute truth absolute justice. And he thinks that God is not nearly enough about the truth and the justice. Another thing that I would, um, another comparison that I would like to make between Eliyahu and Jonah is that neither are moved by God showing them something truly meaningful. When Eliyahu is shown that there, you might think that you're going to see God in storms and wind and mountains, but actually God is in the still small voice, Eliyahu is not moved at all, and he still is depressed. The same with Jonah in chapter 4. God sprouts for him a gourd under which he can shade in the extremely boiling hot sun. He does this miracle for him, and it's a meaningful thing, and yet Jonah... He just, he doesn't appreciate what's real about what's going on. So in this comparison that I've done here um, briefly between Eliyahu and Jonah, Elijah and Jonah, what I've hoped to show you is that the two of them are really reluctant prophets in a sense. They are not heroes. Jonah is not the hero of this story. They're anti-heroes. They do not believe in the good of the people around them. They think that they are solitary and they don't even want to try to connect with the people around him, around them. So if that's the case, if Jonah is not the hero of this story, who is the hero of this story and why are we reading it on Yom Kippur? I think there are three heroes in this story. 
The first hero comes in chapter one, and that is the captain of the ship that Jonah is sailing on. When he says to Jonah, after Jonah goes down into the hold and goes to sleep, when everyone else is running around trying to figure out how to, how to save themselves from this, how to save the ship from the storm, he says to him, Malachanirdam, what the heck are you doing? What are you thinking falling asleep? Kum Call out to your God, do something, pray. Maybe God will change God's mind and we're not going to end up dying. This sentence reminds me so much of the halacha in the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam of Maimonides in Hilchot Shuva, when he says that the shofar, which is such an important symbol during this time of year, the shofar is meant to be like an alarm clock waking up the sleepy heads. The blast of the shofar is symbolic, as if saying, Uru yishenim, mishnatechem, v'nirdamim akitsu mitardematchem. Sleepyheads, people who fall asleep, wake up, emerge from your slumber. Why? In order to examine your conduct, do teshuva, and remember your creator. So it's almost as if the first hero of the story is this captain who is telling us, the reader, the listener, on Yom Kippur afternoon, wake up! This is your wake-up call. It's your chance. you got to do it. Get up and do teshuva. It's also pretty amazing that the way in that particular halacha, the Rambam describes how we need to see the world as evenly balanced between the bad deeds that people do and the good deeds that people do. And it's our job to see that bad deeds, the sin doesn't overbalance. It almost sounds like a boat rocking in the waves, just like in the Jonah story. If everyone on the boat doesn't do their part, the boat is going to overbalance and tip over. So what we're hearing from both the Rambam and the captain of the ship is that we're all in the same boat, so to speak. And we need to get it together to only allow for virtuous overbalance, not sinful, sinful overbalance. The second hero, I think, of this story is the king of Nineveh in chapter 3. How do we know this? Well, of course, he is the one who tells the people of Nineveh that they need to do teshuva. Um, but interestingly, when he hears that Jonah has come and given this prophecy that could spell doom for his entire city, he gets up and he removes his he removes his mantle, his kingly cape, you might say, from him, and he covers himself with um, mourn, mournful clothing, sack and sack um, sackcloth and ashes. That is in complete contradistinction to Eliyahu, who, when he, and I'm talking about Eliyahu here, Jonah's mentor if we're understanding the story in this way. Eliyahu, when he is shown God's attributes, he covers himself in his mantle. And the same word is used, aderet. Instead of taking off that mantle, taking off that sense of ego, Eliyahu covers himself so he can't see anything around him. He just becomes more entrenched. The king removes his mantle when he is shown God. He is moved by God and God's message, right? So, there is something here that we're supposed to see in the king of Nineveh 
on Yom Kippur afternoon. Get rid of your ego. Don't think of yourself too, like you're too high and mighty to be able to do teshuva. Even the king of Nineveh takes off his, his royal robes, his crown, you might say, and submits himself to God. And who's the final hero in this story? I would say that it is teshuva itself. If you disregard the whole added in prayer of chapter two, really there's three distinct sections. We have the story at the beginning of Jonah running away, and we have the story of Jonah and God at the end, almost arguing about what's important in life. And in the middle, we have the story of the people of Nineveh. And right, 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 slam dunk in the middle are the verses in chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, in which the people of Nineveh and then the king of Nineveh recognize that they need to repent. The word teshuva, or the root word of teshuva, which is shin vav bet, occurs four times here. If you disregard that whole added in prayer, you could say that these particular verses and these four words of the center of the entire book, do teshuva, do teshuva, do teshuva, do teshuva. Teshuva itself is the hero. And that's why we're listening to this story on the afternoon of Yom Kippur. That is the message that's supposed to ring in our ears. And that is what we're meant to do on that day. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem or subscribe by visiting elmod.pardes.org. Be sure to tune in next week as Rabbi Michael Hatton discusses Parashat Ha'azinu. Thanks for listening.